You're listening to The COVID Chronicles, a podcast from the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health. Each week, a student from the Health and Science podcasting course interviews public health experts about the COVID-19 pandemic and the important intersections with nutrition, mental health, maternal health, and more. I'm Carolyn Christ, a health and medical journalist in Georgia who co-teaches the podcasting course. I hope you'll enjoy this series as much as I did. Now let's get started with this week's episode. This is how I thought I would end college. My school, where I'm from, has really been impacted by the virus. We expected something to happen soon, but we didn't know it would be this um, drastic so quickly. Will coronavirus rob many young people of what had been sold to them as the best years of their life? COVID-19 has forced many post-secondary schools to change the way they will be offering classes in the fall. After starting the school year with high hopes, the persistent threat of a highly infectious virus shattering many college plans. There are a lot of students out there that are really feeling lost right now and really need a friend. Hello everyone and welcome to my podcast. My name is Andrew Spencer and I will be hosting today's episode titled COVID, College, and Convalescence. The episode will feature an inside view at Emory University's initiative to simultaneously ensure campus safety while also building a strong sense of community for its students. You're all in for a wonderful show today as we are featuring three guests who are each prominent members of the Emory community. First, we will hear from Dean Michael Elliott about the role of the Emory administration in creating a plan for this fall semester. Next, we will hear from Emory undergraduate senior Miko Biana about how student life on campus has changed during the pandemic. And finally, We will wrap up by hearing from physician Dr. Neil Gandhi about how Emory has ensured student safety from a public health standpoint and what we can expect college campuses to look like in the upcoming months and years. Hi, listeners. Uh, Thanks for being with me today, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast. Uh, The theme of the podcast is going to be related to COVID and how the Emory administration, how the Emory students are dealing with the virtual landscape and the different college experience this semester and this school year. And the podcast is going to be divided into three segments. So the first segment is going to be featuring uh, the Emory administration just to kind of get their point of view um, and get some background on the decision making process on school look like this semester and what school is going to look like next semester. The second portion is going to be a student perspective just to get a little bit of a taste of what life is like on campus for those of us that are currently not on campus just to get a sense of what their experience has been with virtual learning and how they might suggest that the Emory administration makes a decision regarding the next semester. And then my third segment is going to feature a public health professional just to talk about what they feel the repercussions of having students on campus this semester will be, uh, just in terms of will there be a spike in cases in November, December, when students are going home for break, and just what they suggest that the administration decides on for next semester. So today, I'd like to welcome Dean Michael Elliott. Dean Michael Elliott is currently the Dean of Emory College of Arts and Sciences and has been since 2017, and he is also a professor of English and American Studies in the college. Hi, Dean Elliott. Thank you so much for being with me today. First question I really had, would you mind describing your primary responsibilities as a dean and the role you had in Emory making the decision for students to return to campus in the fall? Sure. So I'm 
the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. And that means my primary responsibility is for the academic programs of the College of Arts and Sciences. Loosely, I am responsible for making sure that our programs have integrity, for supporting the faculty, for making sure that students have the degree offerings that we promise when we, prom- when we invite you to come to campus, or in this case, invite you to attend classes virtually. And there are certain pieces of Emory that are obviously very important to the experience of the students in the college that I'm not directly responsible for. So I'm not directly responsible, for instance, dining or the dorms. Really, I'm an academic dean. How much of a role then would you say you had in the college making their plans for the semester? Or was that more kind of delegated to somebody else who might have more administrative responsibilities? I played a role. It was a, it was a complicated process. Of course, one of the challenges of the spring and summer is that we were both inventing the process and working through the process at the same time. We did not have a document that we pulled out that said, you know, here's how decisions get made in the time of a pandemic. I participated in something in the university we called the Recovery Implementation Team, RIT. It's a group that was and still is convened by the three executive vice presidents. Uh, And those are the provost, Uh, the Vice President for Business Administration, Chris Agostini, and uh, the Vice President for the Health Sciences, John Lewin, and the Provost right now is Jan Love. So the three of them convened a group over the summer to work on several different facets of the COVID response and to collect information related to the university's reopening. Uh, So I played a, a part in that And then once it became clear that we were going to try to have students back on campus again, the provost began convening and soliciting input from the deans, asking, how would you like to think about that? You know, what would be your priorities if we can have some, but not all of our students back? And so we worked together, the deans and the provost's office, on you know a series of plans to do that. Obviously, earlier in the summer we had hoped to have a greater capacity, mm-hmm. uh, and then and then realize that we need to change course in uh, early July when the cases both in Georgia and nationally were begin were beginning to spike significantly. Uh, and I'll say in all of this, the other uh, another key d- decision maker and <clears throat> and influencer. Um, was Enku Galai, the Dean for Vice President for Campus Life, who of course has to oversee both housing and student health services. Those are critical uh, linchpins, obviously, in this environment. So I know the situation now is that you mainly have freshmen living on campus. I'm just curious, what was the motivation behind that? Was it kind of just to give them a bit of more of a sense of community coming into college? The sense was if we obviously... Again, let's start, let's start with the premise that we know that we can do our best work as an institution for our students when they're on campus. Mm-hmm. And so if we had to reduce the number, we, just, we had to think about which group would benefit the most from being on campus. And I think that I, I and I agreed with this and others, others did as well, that the first year students, in order to acculturate them, to what a, a college undergraduate education is, 
in order to introduce them to the resources of the university, that that group should be the priority. Now, they're not the only population that's on campus. We have, on, at the, on the Atlanta campus, we have about 915 first-year students mm-hmm. residing on campus right now. And then we have about 600 other students uh, residing mostly on the Claremont campus as well. And that, that number also includes some RAs who are obviously essential as well. Uh, but the other students include students who are doing honors research that requires them to be on campus, mm-hmm. um, uh, as well as some international and low-income students that really didn't have other desirable housing options. So then I'm sort of wondering, like, what steps have you guys been taking to try to build that sense of community on campus right now? Because I know it has to be difficult with a lot of the isolation and the virtual classes going on. Are there any like programs you have in place? It's, it's very challenging, right? That we're being pulled in two directions. On the one hand, we want to keep everybody safe, physically safe. On the other hand, we know that their mental health right. uh, and their, you know, frankly, just enjoyment of, of not just being a college, but, you know, requires some kind of, some kind of interaction. Yeah. So about a, two weeks ago, we approved a policy that will allow some small events to go forward in groups of 10 or less. It's supposed to be a faculty member or a staff person present. Some of the things that are starting to go on now are some small arts events. The Carlos Museum has had chalking and dyer mask events. That uh, you see some very small pickup uh, spike ball is very is very popular. You see a lot of frisbee. I've seen some volleyball games. Um, I've heard of people organizing hikes. But we're trying to experiment with this in real time. Again, it's not um, something that we had really that we were really set up for. We want there to be enough social interaction that, frankly, students largely keep their social activities to campus because we think this is the safest place for anybody to be right now. And also, we do we do worry about everybody's mental health. And, you know, at any given day, and I'll, I'll say this is down down for a while, I might get a call from one parent um, worried that we aren't doing enough to make sure that everybody's staying distant from one mm-hmm. another and isolated from one another and then from another parent saying, why aren't we doing more to allow the students to get back together? And that's mm-hmm. kind of just where we are. I mean, well, I feel like in terms of safety, compared to a lot of other schools in the area, I think Emory's doing a pretty good job keeping cases contained. So I'm just curious, like, what do you attribute that to? Is that sort of just the students kind of being diligent about distancing or policies that you've had in place? Or I, I think it's a number of things. One mm-hmm. is that we kept the density of the campus low. That includes both undergraduates, but also there are many fewer staff on campus. Um, There are many fewer faculty working on campus right now. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I know you haven't been to campus. Mm -hmm. Have you been to campus? Have you walked? I really have. No, I have not. No. So, you know, if you, I think if you were to walk around campus right now, you would be really surprised and you just, it feels very different. And that's obviously also has, has negative ramifications as well. We kept our density low. We have really pushed out everywhere we can think of a kind of public health campaign to enforce masking and social distancing. We've tried to give students as much information as possible about the consequences uh, for themselves and for their community if they don't abide by those regulations. And I, you know, and I would say, I think the student, I want to give the students a lot of credit for, um, you know, nobody's perfect, but they are getting as close to perfect as any community that I've seen out there. I think it also helps that we have uh, a lot of testing available, screening, right. testing, asymptomatic 
populations. At this point, if you're living on campus, you're expected to be testing, to be tested every week. Uh, and so that, that's helpful as well. I think we should also admit with a lot, a lot of humility, and if COVID does nothing, it should make one humble, that uh -huh. we've also been lucky so far. I think you know it's likely sometime before the end of the semester that our numbers will rise to a certain uh -huh. extent. Luckily, we are prepared for that. One of the things that I'm not sure is as widely known is that we're actually holding rooms at the Emory Conference Center in uh -huh. order to be able to house isolation and quarantine students. Uh, so we obviously would love to go the entire semester without using many of them, but we are prepared if we have to use more. So then I'm sort of wondering, obviously, this would be the worst case scenario, but if it were to happen that cases were to spike, would you guys hesitate to send students home or would you try to do the best you can to keep everybody on campus and in the I, quarantine? I think we would keep, before sending students home, I think we would try to keep students here. A couple of reasons. One is we have some students who we know really can't go anyplace. It's not like we can completely, you know, and that happened in the spring as well. We also think that we can take care of students pretty well here. And then also, you know, sending people to travel at this point feels risky as well. Uh, what would cause us to have to depopulate the campus would be a situation where we no longer felt that we could take care of students who are here. And that, you know, I think one of the things that's important is that is about what goes on at Emory, but it's also about what is going on in Atlanta and in Georgia. Right. So one of our indicators that we're focusing on, for instance, is how available is testing uh, and how quickly can you get, especially the higher level kind of RT-PCR test, the no swab right. test, how quickly can you get that processed and start contact tracing? If Georgia were to spike to the point where we no longer felt like we could get enough tests, we no longer felt like we could process tests quickly, then I think we'd have, we'd have to consider our options. Right. We very deliberately not created an algorithm. It's mm -hmm. really, it's, a judge, it's gonna be a judgment call. There are about six different key top line indicators that the university is monitoring closely, but we very deliberately not said, well, you know, X number of cases minus yeah. Y number of tests equals we send everybody home gotcha. uh, because we think the situation requires a little bit more nuance than that. Another thing I was also kind of wondering if you could speak to is the financial aspect of reopening campus. So I know a motivation was definitely like giving freshmen and some students who needed to be on campus the opportunity to like have those resources and get a sense of community. But I also know that like a lot of there are a lot of Emory employees who their jobs kind of depend on campus being reopened. So I was wondering kind of what or how much of a motivation was that or like what would have been the repercussions financially for some employees, maybe or just for the university as a whole if campus hadn't reopened. Yeah. So that that last question is hard to answer because yeah. what we really we don't really know what would have happened. Yeah. Um, how many more students would have taken a gap year, for instance? How many right. students would have chosen not to enroll? And I think what you've hit the nail, what you've identified correctly, is that the, most of the money that students pay for tuition, certainly for tuition, but even for room and board, is going to pay people who work yeah. at the campus, whether they're faculty in the college or workers in the dining hall or, or residence life or in the gym. And so we tried very hard not to let the finances drive the decision uh, because we believe in the long run that keeping students safe here if they are here is going to be better for us than any short-term 
financial losses that we might that we might suffer. Right. It's hard though. Uh, you know, yeah. I will be the first person to admit, even on tape, that it's hard if your responsibility is to oversee a large number of staff and faculty who are working at the university, not to worry about the financial impact. And so as much as I think we tried to leave that aside, we knew that there would be a financial impact. We just weren't sure what it would be. We are lucky at Emory, and this is a big difference between Emory and some of our peers, mm-hmm. in that we had some financial cushion. So even right. before the semester started, we had come up with a plan. It involves some pay cuts for staff and faculty, some reduction to some administrative units, and using some money that had been set aside as a kind of a rainy day fund to be mm-hmm. able to try to absorb the, the blow of this particular year. And so I don't want to pretend it's been inconsequential, but it is mm-hmm. the most consequential, I think, for most people has been faculty who are making above a certain threshold are taking a 5% pay cut for the fall. Gotcha. And did you find that like professors as a whole were pretty willing to do that? Or was there a bit of like, were they upset about that at all? Or was there any kind of uproar? About pretty... no, nobody likes making less money. Right. right. <laughs> um, that said, other universities have made similar steps and in some cases, more dramatic steps. And our faculty, I think, understood the gravity of the situation. And also, I think they would rather take that modest and hopefully short-term cut Mm -hmm. overseeing some of their peers, including some of the staff, lose their positions more permanently. And so I don't want to pretend that they were thrilled. And certainly many were pretty unhappy, but I think on the whole, they understand the context. And then I'm also curious a little bit about like the non-academic faculty. So maybe like dining hall employees, for example, what percent, or I don't know if you know, but like compared to last year, maybe when it was at full capacity of workers, what percentage of workers are still working? That That's a great question, but I, uh, I don't know the answer to gotcha. that. And, you know, and it's a little clouded because it's also, we do that through a contractor. Uh, I will say most of the things that we're doing on campus, even though there are fewer students who are being served, it's requiring just as many people behind the scenes to make it happen. So for instance, dining, the dining, right, I have seen some numbers on this. I don't have them off the the top Mm -hmm. of my head, but it's it's costing us much more to feed, if you want to think of it crassly, a a student this semester Mm -hmm. than usual. Even though I'm sure the students um, would point out, especially if they've been here before, that they don't have as many choices uh, uh, as they would in a typical semester. Right. Right. But COVID makes you know virtually everything more expensive to do. Yeah. Um, and the same I would say is true of teaching. You know, we yeah. are now hiring a lot of people to help us with the technology. Right. We're doing things like mailing chemistry kits to students. Yeah. Um, there's nothing about COVID that makes the uh makes education less expensive and i mean just kind of going off of that i'm curious like what was the was there like a training process for academic faculty to get adjusted to the online learning format and like absolutely yeah so you may you may or may not be aware of this but emory college for about five years has been offering some online courses every summer not not a huge number and the students who really only know about it are in summer school. So for that, for faculty who want to teach in that, in that way, we had staff develop an online training program called Emory College Online. Uh, not really the most clever, clever title, but it yeah. works. Yeah. And it's a training course. So 
in, their, in a normal year, it would have been a six-year training course. The idea is you take it one summer in order to prepare to teach for the next summer. Uh -huh. So obviously we knew that wasn't going to work, but the staff who were involved in that came up with a free week version and every instructor, and that includes both faculty, but also graduate students and other people teaching our classes, took that three week course over the course of June in order to be able to redesign their syllabi for the fall. Gotcha. It was a pretty massive undertaking. It involved a lot of graduate students helping, uh, and it ended up reaching over 800 people. So, so the, it gives me, though, a lot of confidence that even though I, not there, I know they're not going to be glitch-free and that there's still uh -huh. going to be some challenges, these courses were designed to be taught online uh -huh. in a way that's very different than the spring, where uh -huh. you know, all of a sudden a professor who had never heard of Zoom before in his or her life was finding themselves uh, trying to finish out the semester. Yeah, and so like, how are you guys, I mean, specifically trying to promote engagement? Because I know it can be kind of difficult virtually. I mean, I know, I know at least in some of my classes, we're doing a lot of breakout rooms and some interactive activities via Zoom. So I was wondering if that was like specifically encouraged to professors to do that, because I'm seeing that a lot. I don't know. Ab absolutely. So, you know, a training course like this doesn't tell a faculty exactly what to do. Um, because your professors don't really appreciate that. Yeah. I'm happy to have that recorded as well. But certainly <laughs> they presented a series of tools that uh, that were useful, are useful to create student engagement. Uh -huh. And so things like breakout rooms, things like trying to make sure you have at least one synchronous session a week, uh, using things like discussion boards, quizzes, all of those things were covered in this in this course, as well as sort of thinking about the balance of synchronous and asynchronous materials, and just even just how you organize the class. You know, mm -hmm. one of the interesting things was you had all these faculty, and I actually participated in one of these groups in June, mm -hmm. you know, in June talking to each other about their classes. And that, that was, you know, they learned as much from each other as they did from the instructors. Yeah. Uh, because obviously, in a, something as, as big and complicated as Emory College, it's not a one-size-fits-all set of solutions. A, a, a big lecture course with labs is going to have a different set of solutions than a small right. seminar course or a class like the one you're taking now on podcasting. And so the idea was to help people hear from each other about different tools and then kind of let people trade uh, ideas who are teaching similar courses. Some of that's still going on as the semester proceeds. Uh, yeah. You know, faculty are still listening to each other and trying to learn from each other what the best practices are. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, I can definitely see a major difference from like this semester to the spring. And I think that definitely can be attributed to like the planning and the training that went into it. So well, so we've also think, we've mm -hmm. also heard that fact that some, there are some faculty who've gone so far the other direction that they're assigning a little bit too much work. And uh, I don't know if you're experiencing that. You don't have to reveal that on tape. <laughs> uh, but I do think I think faculty, you know, they will are getting the hang of it. They're trying to find the right balance. Yeah. I would say a lot of faculty also, I think, entered the semester with a small chip on their shoulder. You just listened to the news over the summer. You heard a lot of people in the popular media complaining about online courses and comparing it to you know, glorified Skype. And I yeah. think a lot of faculty entered the semester determined to show that they, these courses could be as rigorous and demanding as their in-person courses. And perhaps maybe some of them went a little bit far in that direction. That's our worst problem. I, I will live with that. Gotcha.
Yeah, I had not even considered that. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky. Most of my classes, I feel like I've been pretty manageable. But Terrific. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess another thing, too, I know engagement, too, can be particularly challenging for people that are living off campus. Um, you know, so I'm just wondering, too, like, have you guys, do you guys have any, like, maybe online programs or stuff that you put into place to help a student that may be living off campus several thousand miles away stay engaged and keep connected to the Emory community? Yeah, different different majors are coming up with different things. Mm-hmm. We've really sort of let the departments try to drive that. So some of them are doing, you know, trivia trivia nights. Some of them are just doing coffee hours. Um, some of them are uh, doing like town halls uh, and other and other kinds of things to check in. So we've been encouraging departments to do that. The the challenge is that, and I don't know what your experience is. I think a lot of students are just zoomed out by the end of the day. Yeah. And yeah. I, I'm very sympathetic to that. You know, I, you know, you're, I'm in my office right now. Um, most days I come in here around eight, eight or so, right at eight 30, I start my first zoom meeting and I'll wow. be in this chair for most of the day. Wow. Uh, even though I'm on campus, uh, maybe I'll have one, or maybe one, one in-person meeting a day. Sometimes I'll meet a student will walk around. Uh, and so, we're, everybody's trying to find that balance, but but that is definitely a worry of ours as well. Oh well, yeah, I won't take too much more of your time, but I I had to ask as my last question if you have any like inside scoop kind of for what to expect from the spring. I know some classes are already designated as online, but I was wondering if you like anticipate anything different or if it. I mean, it's honestly probably way too early to tell. I'm just curious, like what you expect or if you have any expectations. So. I think barring some major development, I think we will be able to have the same numbers of students at least on campus in the spring. And the question we're trying to answer now is how much more do we feel like we can increase that? One of our big limitations and one of the, one of the decisions we wrestled with over the summer is that we made a decision to limit campus housing to single occupancy, one person, mm-hmm. which obviously you know, allows us to house many fewer students than we would in a typical semester. So my guess is we will end up somewhere between where we are now and where we were a year ago. Yeah. But I, I don't yet have the magic answer to where exactly gotcha. we're going to land on that continuum. Gotcha. Yeah. I do know that we're trying to come to a set of decisions fairly soon so that students can plan the challenge with the whole decision-making process, and this was our challenge during the summer, mm-hmm. and you saw this play out in real time, mm-hmm. is the earlier we make the decision, the better people can plan, then the more meager the information we have. Right. I would really like to avoid, as I'm sure everybody would, another situation where we announce one set of plans and then conditions right. change and we have to reverse them. That said, in 2020, that you know, I can't promise that'll never happen. Right, exactly. He knows what's coming, right? Yeah. It's, it's you know, if you had told me a year ago, you'd come to my office, <sighs> down a recorder, and said, you know, how will you conduct classes during, you know, at a period where everybody has to be six feet apart and mask, yeah. and you can only yeah. have single occupancy on campus, and we have to get tested every week for a virus for which there is no vaccine or cure, I would have throwing you out of my office for right. asking ridiculous questions. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're all in a place that we didn't expect to be right now. And I, you know, I'd say 
there are so many hard things about this, and um, I think the students have handled it with a tremendous amount of grace mm-hmm. and resilience, and I'm just so impressed by them. I wish I could make it easier for the students than, than yeah. it is. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think Emory's honestly done a really fantastic job. And I mean, a lot of that can definitely be attributed to the decisions you guys have made. So thank you for that. And thank you again so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate you answering the questions for me today. And um, My pleasure. I'm really grateful that we got to hear Dean Elliott speak today. I thought it was really interesting to hear particularly about kind of the academic side of things and some of the sacrifices that professors have had to make this semester. I think that that's kind of forced me to see the situation in a new light um, and just kind of forced me to reflect and understand that even though, you know, the situation is definitely not ideal for students, the administration and faculty at Emory are definitely acting with our best interests as students at heart. And I think that that's an important thing to remember and keep in mind at this time. So now we are going to be shifting gears and we're going to get a taste of a student perspective. I'd like to introduce Miko Biana. Um, Miko is a senior at Emory right now, majoring in philosophy, politics, and law. He also serves as a residential advisor in Raoul Hall, and he also serves as the vice president of the 54th legislature of the student government. So let's welcome Miko Biana. Hey, Miko. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for doing this. So would you mind kind of just giving a summary of like your responsibilities right now on SGA and also as an RA? Yeah, um, so I'm the vice president of SGA. And so um, it's an interesting role. It's definitely not anywhere near the work of a president, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's a really great opportunity to sort of have, not like supervision because I don't really supervise people, but mm-hmm. just a lot of insight on the workings of the executive branch. So we have appointed, I think this year's our highest number of executive branch members. We have like 16, I want to say. Um, it's a really high number, um, but they all do different roles. And so my my role is basically to um, connect them to different resources and people on campus, um, sort of using this platform that I have in SGA. Um, I think, so for example, you, you mentioned that Dean Elliott mentioned me as someone's interview, and I think I've used my, my platform, which I'm really privileged to have, you know, to connect with people like Dean Elliott to talk about, you know, our campus and COVID and things like that. Um, So it's definitely not ceremonial, but sometimes it feels like that. But I think, you know, being the vice president, you, I think people have this assumption that you don't really do your own work, but it's definitely not true. I think I've had independent meetings, you know, aside from Lori, who's our president. Um, So, yeah. And in terms of being an RA, that's definitely more related to, I guess, COVID enforcement and sort of understanding the community compact um, and sort of towing the line between, um, you know, creating a community for first year students. I'm an RA in Raul. Um, So creating a community for, well, most of our campus residents are first years, but creating a community for them that they feel safe and included, but also, you know, an environment that is respectful of the guidelines set forth in the community compact. so I think a lot of people see RAs as this rule enforcer role, um, which is definitely an aspect of it, but an important part of my position is to ensure, you know, the safety and the smooth transition, especially for first year students that, you know, are transitioning in an unparalleled time. Like I did not transition to college in this way. Um, so it's sort of a lesson that we're learning together. Um, but 
yeah, I don't know the really answered it, but <laughs> no, that, you know, that was great. Yeah, thank you. Um, I know you mentioned sort of like the campus environment right now. So I'm like living at home, virtual, mm -hmm. everything virtually. How would you describe the vibe on campus right now? Like, is it noticeably quieter, or is it like? Yes. Yeah. So. So I'm also a senior, and so I'll sort of give it from the perspective of like a senior. I this sounds it's gonna sound so dramatic, but for me it's like a very immeasurable loss because you you kind of I know what I'm missing out on, but also as a senior it's like I'm missing on my last fall semester, and I'm you know considering how things are going, like spring probably won't be anything drastically different. Um, and campus is very quiet, like it's pretty much dead at all times. <laughs> um, yeah. During meal time times when it's like I would say like noon or like 5 or 6 p.m. when people get lunch and dinner maybe that's when I see people on campus but I'm used to Tuesday farmers markets with like hundreds of people you know squished together in Coxbridge um, people just sitting in the library doing whatever the quad being packed with people you know like not like sunbathing but you know just like standing like sitting outside and doing whatever um, in this world it's just you can't do that anymore you can't just like sit with a friend or like you know, you run into someone, you have to stand <laughs> away from them, like with a mask on, and you can barely hear them sometimes. Um, so it's noticeably different. And I think it's so hard to explain that to people, um, especially to my residents where, you know, they've never really had that experience. And so it's hard to communicate that. But it is very, very, very noticeably different. Um, so it's a little sad, but um, I understand why, you know. Right, definitely. So, I mean, has SGA in particular, do you guys have any, like, initiatives or anything that you're doing to sort of try to promote that sense of unity in whatever way you can in the setting? Yeah, I think it's difficult because, so, S so the thing about SGA is that we, we oversee the four divisional councils, which is, like, lingo for basically we are the overarching student governance body, but we, I think we're trying to empower the divisional councils to really build that sort of culture in their own schools, like not like to divide schools because one Emory and whatever the, the marketing ploy is of the year, but um, I think we don't do, we are not a programmatic arm per se, like we don't do a lot of programming. So a lot of the work that we do and the, the initiatives that we launch are sort of either addressing student concerns um, so, for example, our, like, anti-racist initiative, like, that's something that is important for all students, but it's not necessarily a community-building aspect. I think organizations such as SPC, for example, are the ones that are sort of driving this campus culture, and I don't think I want to take away from that, in a sense, because SPC's job is to provide programming for students, and I think they're doing a great job in terms of providing accessible, you know, events for students who are living off-campus and on-campus. Mm -hmm. Um, and since SPC is an executive agency of SJ, we oversee them directly and we fund them directly instead of them receiving money from College Council, for example. Um, not to say that we're responsible for their work. We are definitely not responsible. They are yeah. their own organization. But um, yeah, I think SJ is not really, I'm not saying that we're not responsible, but it's definitely not the work that we are intentionally pursuing. I think it's more on building that. I think Emory... I'm sure you know this. Emory is a very big club school. Like you are very much affiliated with your organization um, and like the things that you do on campus. And I think I'm really inspired by the clubs that have been like really pushing this idea of even if you're off campus, like you're still a part of this community. Um, so, yeah. Gotcha. Nice. Um, so I guess to another thing that I was, I wanted to ask was, so um, Dean Elliott said that he meets with you pretty regularly. So was your input or has your input been solicited at all just in terms of like 
Emory making a decision about like what to do next semester, even like their decision this semester? Or is that kind of more toward like the higher administration? Yeah. So yeah, we, 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 we meet pretty regularly. I also meet with um, David Clark, who is the associate VP of campus life every week. And I think it's definitely, I'm definitely not like in the meetings where they're like, okay, this is going to happen. Um, I'm still a student, like as much as um, I feel like I have this close relationship with administrators. I definitely am not the person who's calling all the shots as I should not be, as I am definitely not, do not have the purview that they do. Um, but I think they're more interested in like the student experience. And I think that's where they bring people like me in. Cause it's definitely not just me. I think the administrators are very interested in hearing from students, you know, from all age, not, not ages, from all years, from different organizations that are in different, you know, whether it's student government or elsewhere. Um, and so I, I don't think I am sort of the driving factor in terms of like, okay, this is what they're gonna do, but I think it does sort of frame their decision based on like what I say, not only about my experience, but for example, I have residents, right? So I, you know, I talk to them and I'm like, what is going on on campus? Like, how do you feel? Like, what is your class thinking? And like being able to communicate that is important. Um, but I definitely am not, the person who's like, all right, reopen this way and like do all this. Um, but I think that student experience piece is really important to them. Um, I don't know how much it's used in the decision-making process. It's far, far above my pay grade, which is zero <laughs> um, in terms of SBA and um, and in Res Life. I mean, I am paid, so that's not zero. Yeah. But um, yeah, gotcha. So, I mean, I guess like too, you mentioned like having residents. I mean, how has your experience as an RA been? this year different like compared to I mean last year I mean I know last year you were an RA for sophomores mm -hmm. as opposed to freshmen but I mean obviously this year is totally different circumstances so how how is your I mean have your residents been like interacting as much is there that sense of community in Raul or I mean, yeah um I think there is this really burning desire for a lot of in-person events and I understand because, you know, students who decided to come to campus, like, you know, the intent was to have this experience. Like, they don't want to come just to sit in their rooms alone on Zoom for hours on end. Um, it's definitely harder to build more um, organic and genuine relationships just because it's harder to just sit down with someone at, like, the duck, for example, and be like, okay, let's be friends. Like, that doesn't happen because, you know, all dining, all dining services are to go. So, like, you, you have to be really intentional about the relationships you create. And so definitely with my residents and like even among themselves, like it's friendships formed really fast in the beginning because people were just like trying to find friends. But I think it's sort of been hard to branch out of those friendships that you made in the first few weeks, because it seems like everyone is set in like this idea of like a first year friend group and it's going to last forever. And I think that happens in every year, regardless of whether there's a pandemic or not, I've seen it happen in, you know, residences that I've lived in and, you know, worked in. Um, but I would say they, they do communicate a lot and they interact with each other a lot. Like they can be outside. They can like go into lounges. You know, they obviously have to be like apart and wearing masks. But um, I think it is harder to sort of, especially with people outside of your residence hall. I think that is like a, a big gap because you can't enter other buildings that aren't your own. And so that there's sort of like that disconnect. Um, but even though it's like less, I guess, in comparison to years past, I still think it's there. Like I don't think people still like get lunch and go to Caldi's and do the things that they would do in their first year. But I would say it's noticeably um, fewer or less, you know, the, that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's good to hear that there's still like some sense of community though. Um, but have students or, I mean, I know like Emory is doing a lot better than like a lot of its peers just in terms mm -hmm. of 
COVID and keeping it contained, like, have you noticed, like, are your residents good at following, like, the guidelines and stuff like that? Or have you had, like, issues there? I know, like, you said your role as an enforcer. But. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely difficult the first few weeks, um, mm-hmm. just because it's something we all have to get used to. And I think I'm trying to approach it from um, a, a perspective of grace, because I understand this desire to want to connect, especially for a lot of these students who lost a majority of their their second semester of their senior year and losing out, losing out on those milestones. And now they have this opportunity to, you know, be free and like, you know, but they're still like, you know, I don't think they see it as quarantine because they're at college. So it's like, well, I'm not at home. Like I'm, you know, I'm living in a dorm. Like I can hang out with whoever I want, et cetera. Um, so the first few weeks were definitely more difficult markedly than it is now. There are still residents who, you know, you have to remind them every now and then, like, I just tap my face. I'm like, just wear your mask. Or like, yeah. you know, I just like, I think I want to make it more educational in terms of like, mm-hmm. this is, you know, we're doing so well because a lot of people are following the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they get that. It's just, it's hard, you know, and it's also hard to adjust because wearing a mask is not really second nature for a lot of people. Um, so I, I think approaching it from that standpoint is something I, I really want to do, but um, it's definitely not easy. And it's definitely changed the role of an RA. I think it's it's made it harder for RAs and even essays to sort of build those relationships with residents because mm-hmm. residents sort of see us as like the people who make it less fun, right? Like not wearing a mask isn't fun, I won't lie. And like being six feet apart from people is not fun. Like it's not normal. Um, yeah. And so when we remind them of that, it's, they don't like it. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, but. Um, yeah. So are you still able to have like your one-on-ones in person and that kind of thing too? Yeah, so I, so we have two for first year students in the first semester. And so we, I elected to do mine virtually for the first round, but I plan on doing it in person in the second round. And I know RAs in the building also had their one-on-ones in person. Um, and there are still like in-person programs. The difference is that now people can't just like come to the kitchen and like grab whatever they want. Like people have to sign up via OrcSync. And, you know, if we give out food, it has to be individually packaged. So there's just a lot of differences. Um, but there's still opportunity for in-person connection. Um, yeah. And I guess another thing too, I'm curious about like, what's the protocol if someone isn't like following the masking guidelines, like, is it just like a warning first, then they get written up or like, I'm just. Yeah. So I think ResLife is trying to approach it in, again, in terms of that educational aspect. So like, yeah. um, so the rule for gatherings in a room, like a room that I'm in right now, for example, mm-hmm. is three people, um, but still masked and like, you know, mm-hmm. distant. Um, but for example, if there were four people in a room and I opened the door and I saw four people, I would have to, you know, report that. Like that would be an incident report. Um, but if I see someone, for example, in a lounge by themselves, not wearing a mask, I'm not going to go in and say, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to write you up. <laughs> um, I think they want to approach it in terms of like, because, you know, writing people up doesn't necessarily incentivize that they're going to do it. Mm-hmm they're not going to do it again, right? Like, it, that's not really the point of punishment. I, yeah. Punishment, again, is a very loaded term, but um, I think they really want it to be more of, like, a, you you should do this for yourself and for others, not necessarily, like, do it because these are the norms that we have to subscribe to, right? Like, this mm-hmm. is, they want people to wear masks for the right reasons. But they're, like, with, like, certain cases, like, for example, like, the large gatherings or, like, um, you know, I think we still we still pursue protocol in terms of like if they're drinking in a room, for example. Like yeah. now, it's a double layer of well, you're drinking in your room and you are also not wearing a mask, yeah. so and you're also violating the like maximum capacity capacity. So there's a lot of different layers 
Um, but it really just depends on the situation. Um, I'm not going to sit here and list all of them just because that's not interesting, yeah. but um, there are some where it's mostly just like a reminder and then somewhere like for like large gatherings, it's just like mm-hmm. you have to document it. But So I know like with all of like the isolation that is happening, I'm sure mental health like has to be a pretty big concern. Like, have you, have you tried to be more intentional about like checking in on people or like kind of monitoring your mm-hmm. mental health? And have you noticed maybe with like other RAs too, has that been a concern with them as well? Yeah. Um, so I have, I'm on a side of Raul that's all male residents and I don't know if it's a male stigma of like not really being open about mental health, but, um, I have had, when I have my one-on-ones with my residents, I think they're a little more willing to be open and in hall meetings, it's a little weird to just be like, well, I'm suffering. Um, but in a one-on-one, it's more easy to be like, well, I'm, you know, going through this. I have this academic issue. I have this transitional issue, things like that. There's definitely been those concerns, um, but I don't know if it's, I, I'm also speaking from very limited experience, but mm-hmm. it hasn't seemed incredibly different to me. I think, I don't want to say it's because people are used to it, which is definitely not an excuse and that's, you know, not enough because mental health is super important and like talking about it is really important. Um, but I, I don't really think I've noticed a, a large difference, especially because students do have those interactions. And a lot of them do have like in-person classes, for example. And so it's, they may feel isolated in some ways, but it's not like pure isolation where they're like, you know, at home and alone, which is a concern that I have for off-campus residents. And I'm sure that like, um, Dean Elliott has talked about it too, because that's one of his concerns. It's like, you know, those are the students that are like truly isolated. Whereas like on-campus residents have this opportunity to at least interact with like their neighbors and like people they meet in class and whatever it may be. But who knows, because it's also only October and uh, things develop so quickly. And maybe in my second round of one-on-ones, I'll, you know, have more conversations about students and declining mental health. Um, Because I think what we've learned in the pandemic is that you have to be adaptable and and flexible and things change so fast. And like, maybe they just haven't had time to process, you know, the sheer like difference in what they're going through. Um, So I'm also curious. So I wasn't even really aware that like in-person classes were happening. So like, Mm -hmm. do you like a good percentage of your residents have in-person classes? Yeah, I would say a lot of people have a, they usually have one. So it's predominantly like first year seminar class where it's Mm -hmm. capped at, a certain amount anyway, so it's it's safer. Um, I know some classes, like for example, in the dance department have been happening in person where people are in like an eight foot box by themselves and they are like feet and feet and feet away from each other just like for safety and everyone wears a mask the whole time. Um, so yeah, I would say I, I the most, most of the residents I've talked to have one, most just have one. There's, I, I don't think I've heard of anyone have two. Um, and I think that's, the, that was the intention of the university inviting first year students is right. you're not going to have all your classes in person, but you know, if you are coming to campus, it does make sense to at least try to have one small section of a class. So most of my residents say they have classes with like nine or 10 other people. Um, I think the max is actually 10. I mean, I'm glad to hear that. Like I didn't even know what's happening, but I mean, I guess though, that also means that like, despite that in-person class, they still have majority online classes. So have yeah. you noticed maybe like, that residents are kind of reporting more like academic troubles or like Mm -hmm. staying focused? Because I know at least in my own experience, it's really hard to like focus on Zoom. Like, so are you seeing that with residents? Yeah. And I think what what I, again, keep bringing up is that they've never been to like an Emory other than like the one 
in-person class they might have, but that's not an in-person class, you know, that you and I have experienced, yeah. right? And so they have, they've had, you know, online classes in their senior year, for example. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they know what it's like kind of, but it's, it's weird, you know, being a first year student and like not ever having seen these people in your life or not having mm-hmm. seen your professor in person, like to go to office hours or something like that. Um, I think one academic concern is that professors, and I think this is across years, not just, not necessarily first year students, but um, just like the the workload has increased a lot just because it's Mm -hmm. hard for professors to sort of understand like engagement and like, you know, Mm -hmm. how to really check in with with students. And I think Mm -hmm. they really saw like giving more assignments as a way to notice who's paying attention, who's not, who's doing the work and who's not. so a lot of my residents have just, you know, in addition to this transition from high school level work, which is not necessarily rigorous, mm-hmm. depending on where you went to school, and then, you know, college, which is a whole new ballpark. Right. Um, there's definitely been that level of academic concern. I would say that's probably the most prominent concern that I've received from, from residents, whether they're mine or like other residents that I know in Raul, it's just they have a lot of work and they're really stressed and you know, they have to be adaptable in terms of like, if they have a lab, you know, they have to do labs in their room now. And like, if, right. Yeah, if they have like an exam, like it's not like an exam you've ever taken before, like it's on Canvas and like, what is that? And like, there's just a lot of, the transition is hard regardless. And now it's this layer of being online is is really adding to it. Um, but I, I, I've done my best in terms of like explaining, like it's important to set a schedule. It's important to study. It's important to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Do I do that? I'm not like the perfect person. <laughs> I also, yeah. I've, Zoom is definitely not my favorite mode of learning but um yeah I think just like connecting with them on that level and being like it's okay to not be a perfect student but if you're trying like that's that's really all that matters okay so I guess this is also like sort of a loaded question but I guess in hindsight like or do you feel like Emory made the right decision overall this semester to sort of partially reopen and like have freshmen come back or like in hindsight is there anything you would have done differently if you had made the decision Mm -hmm. Well, I think inviting first-year students is a really critical mm-hmm. decision because first-year students who feel disconnected from the community are often the reason why they transfer. And so mm-hmm. Emory has, um, not a problem, but Emory is known for having a lower retention rate compared to our peer institutions, and the university is aware of that. And so it's important that first-year students experience Emory and like make those connections and build that community so that they are more inclined to stay throughout their four years instead of transferring to a school that's closer to home or a school that's ranked higher than Emory, for example. Um, I think it is difficult in terms of the sophomore year experience because sophomore sophomore year is a very, it's like the the awkward stepchild of like college years because, you know, your first year is all about like transitioning and like getting to know everyone. And then your last two years is about like, finishing school and like career exploration and things like that. And sophomore year is kind of just like the, you know, the one in the middle. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think it's, I think I definitely understand why they didn't have the capacity to invite all sophomore students, especially if first year students are priority. Um, but I've definitely explained to a lot of administrators how sophomore students are, you know, a really also critical population and sometimes they're overlooked. And of course, like if I was a sophomore student and I wasn't being invited back to campus, I'd be really sad. And I'd be like, well, I didn't get to finish my first year. And now my second year is like, well, <laughs> I'm not there. So I, I don't know if they could have made a better decision. I think in my opinion, I think they did the best they could. And I think that a lot of the decisions they made are the reason that Emory is not in the headlines of right. 
major newspapers because, and that's good. I think all my friends told me, well, we should be in the headlines for being good. And I'm like, well, you know what? I don't really want the attention. Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's yeah. better that we're like in our own world and like doing well. Like I think since June, um, I just looked at the dashboard today. There's been like 97 cases total from mm-hmm. students um, since June. So that, and most oh, of the, yeah. most of the cases are off campus. Um, there have been okay. some on campus cases, but no like major outbreaks or like okay. reasons for like being scared. So um, in my opinion, I always tell this to Dinalia and to all the administrators I talk to, like I'd rather it be the lockdown be harder, I guess, or like more yeah. severe. And like, then you can lighten up because you can reverse it that way, but you can't reverse like a really large outbreak. You can't just, right. you can't open the whole thing and then be like, okay, let's hunker down again and send people home, for example, because that's right. just, that's even worse. You, you and I both know this transition of like leaving so quickly. Um, so I, I don't think there's anything they could have done better um, because you, and again, you never know, like hindsight is twenty twenty, mm-hmm. and it's just, I think they, they did the best that they could knowing the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're they're using that mentality to decide on spring um, right. because they, they don't want it to be another spring 2020. And I know it's going to disappoint a lot of people um, if we remain the same way. But I mean, health and safety has to come first in a pandemic. Like, you know, so um, long story short, I think they did the right thing. Gotcha. So my last question, I was wondering, um, I mean, what are your expectations for next semester? Like, do you, and also, like, what are your hopes? Like, do you think maybe sophomores could, like, like maybe get housing? Or, I don't know. I mean, I'm just curious what your, yeah. your expectations are. Yeah. Well, I think it'll largely be the same. I expect mm-hmm. your students, again, to be here for the spring just because they already live here. <laughs> like, I, I'm going to assume it's, like, you know, normal year where they can just leave their stuff in between mm-hmm. the fall and the spring and they just come back. Um, there are open spaces on campus. For example, Clifton Tower and Claremont Tower are both totally empty right now. I don't know what housing and res life and campus life are planning to do with those spaces. There definitely is a capacity for it. I think their issue with Claremont Tower, for example, is elevators are not conducive to social distancing and Claremont Tower is like 17, 18 floors. And so people like, it's very inaccessible, I guess. Um, Even if you're a, you know, fit and like able-bodied person, like 18 flights is not really like, it's really not worth it in my opinion. Um, So I don't know what they're going to do. I see that, I see that genuinely, like they are Mm -hmm. very, they're not one to tell students randomly, like, okay, this is what they're going to do. I do think a decision will be coming soon. I don't know if it's this week or next week, but I know they have to tell people soon. I guess just in terms of hopes, like, this sounds very, this is, I'm I'm very cynical. So I think (laughs) part of me is like, there's really not much that I can expect. Like, I can't really expect like Senior Tuesdays or like Wonderful Wednesday After Dark. Like I've sort of let those things go, which is really sad. But I hope that people are more adjusted to this, not like more adjusted in, like this is going to last forever, but mm-hmm. I hope the suffering or the burden is like yeah. alleviated, I guess, yeah. to some degree, whether that's for on-campus or off-campus yeah. students. This is a really hard time. And like, mm-hmm. it, it just sucks. Like it, that's like the, the again, yeah. this is me, but um, I'm not, not that I'm not hopeful, but I know that Emory will, whatever Emory makes in terms of a decision, I know it's because they want everyone to be safe. Um, and I have firm faith in that. Like, sounds very like cliche and like I'm just mm-hmm. <laughs> feeding the ego of Emory University but I know they wouldn't make a rash decision mm-hmm. in the endangerment of the community right and yeah I mean at the end of the day safety has to come first so that makes sense to me 
I mean, that's honestly all the questions I really had. So, I mean, thanks again for your response. It was really awesome. I am more than happy to provide that insight where I can. For my third and final interview segment, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Neil Gandhi. Dr. Neil Gandhi is a trained physician and currently serves as an associate professor of epidemiology in the Rollins School of Public Health. He's also participated in tuberculosis research in the Emory School of Medicine for over 20 years. More recently, he was a founding member of the Emory COVID-19 Response Collaborative, through which he was appointed public health subject matter expert for the Emory COVID Response and Recovery Plan of 2020, which was directly responsible for deciding in what manner to reopen campus for the fall 2020 semester. We had to, we got to have a wonderful discussion about the specific factors that went into the fall 2020 semester plan, the implementation of testing protocols, his reaction to the current spike in COVID-19 cases throughout the nation, and his expectations for the months and even years ahead. So without further ado, enjoy the segment. Hi, Dr. Gandhi. How are you? Hi, Angie. How are you? I'm doing well. First, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time and being willing to do this. I know your schedule must be really, really busy right now, so I just really, really appreciate all that. Happy to do it. So I guess to start off, um, so I know that you are a member of the Emory COVID-19 Response Collaborative. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit toward what your role on that collaborative is and how it was um, how it was built and who else is a member of it. Sure. Um, I'll start by actually taking a step back because the story of it starts um, before we formalized the work that we were doing into the collaborative. So as you know, um, in March, uh, the pandemic uh, came upon us um, more suddenly than I, than I had anticipated, and I think many of us had. And we found ourselves in late March in the throes of really what was uncertain at that time point. A number of public health faculty decided to engage in the ways that they saw available. Um, so I did, as well as uh, Dr. Sarita Shaw and Dr. Allison Chamberlain, um, all engaged by connecting with the Fulton County Board of Health. Um, recognizing that uh, public health agencies at that time were uh, very understaffed um, and that the task ahead of them um, was quite large. Um, there were other faculty members of the School of Public Health who engaged with the Georgia Department of Public Health, um, as well as in other ways, testing new diagnostic uh, tests, thinking about seroprevalence and so on. And so for the first few months, um, everybody uh, contributed where they could um, and uh, there was an opportunity uh, towards the end of April, beginning of May, um, to potentially reach out to some of the foundations that have been wonderful to Emory over the years. Um, and in this case, it was the Woodruff Foundation um, who had extended an, a hand to say that they'd like to be able to, uh, to contribute to the state's uh, public health efforts. And so together with Dean uh, Curran, the Dean of the Rollins School of Public Health, and uh, Dr. Allison Chamberlain leading the effort, they were able to uh, secure a grant from the Woodruff Foundation um, to help support Emory's engagement with local public health authorities to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. And so very much the spirit of the Woodruff um, grant was to not have Emory do its own thing, but rather to work towards seeing how Emory's unique uh, talents and skills could be put into the service 
of our public health agencies. Um, and so that's what the Emory COVID Response Collaborative is. Um, it's a collaboration between Emory and the Georgia Department of Public Health um, and individual health districts around the state um, to provide support and expertise to the work that they're already doing. So that's, um, that's kind of a, an overview of what the Emory, uh, what we call the ECRC is. Um, and my engagement has remained focused on Fulton County um, and, and how my team could help uh, with the work that Fulton County is doing. And what, the way we support them and engage with them has evolved, you know, month after month as the pandemic has evolved. And then my team also is involved with Emory University's uh, COVID response plan, uh, many of the different activities happening in the university as well. In terms specifically of like Emory's specific response to the COVID, was your team, did your team play a role in their decision to partially reopen campus? So, I mean, I was just wondering, like, what were the main factors that were involved in that decision to partially reopen, maybe as opposed to like having a full normal reopening versus also having no students come to campus at all? So um, I was asked in May uh, to serve on a task force um, that would look into, you know, at that point in May, the campus was entirely closed. Um, and uh, we were tasked with two um, objectives. One was to determine how we could safely reopen campus on June 1st, uh, primarily for faculty and staff at that point because the academic year was over, um, and then how we could prepare for students to return to campus in August uh, for the fall semester. Um, there were a number of factors that, that we considered over that at that time period. Um, our initial charge um, was to see how we could reopen campus and part of that was essentially how we could, sorry, let me, let me take a step back. So all along, we have known and we have thought that there would be COVID-19 cases among Emory-affiliated individuals. And I'll use the phrase Emory-affiliated individuals out of uh, convenience. That is students, faculty, and staff who uh, work or, or learn at Emory. So we've known all along, given the, given the scope of the pandemic and given the fact that we don't live in a bubble, um, that even, you know, certainly faculty and staff, but even students, uh, for the most part, don't live on campus. The majority of students um, don't live on campus at, at our university, that whatever is happening in the world out, outside of Emory will continue to influence what happens among Emory-affiliated individuals. And so we recognize that there would be cases that occurred. So the goal was not to prevent cases. The goal was to prevent uh, transmission um, either on campus or among Emory-affiliated individuals who are spending time together off campus. And so that was, the, that was the initial mandate we were given was to help devise a plan and a strategy to uh, ensure that if campus were to reopen, that when cases did occur, how we can minimize the, the secondary and tertiary impacts of those cases. Um, and so in, in May, uh, we created a, a robust Emory contact tracing program with the goal of rapidly identifying close contacts of diagnosed individuals and having those individuals be made aware that they're a close contact, ask them to quarantine, and ask them to be tested. Um, so that's where we were in June, and we, from the very start, had the ultimate goal of reopening campus to students for the fall semester. Along the way, many of our um, 
decisions that were made had to continually be uh, revisited and evolved to match the circumstances. So the plan that we had um, at the beginning of June ultimately was not the plan that was implemented in August, because as you may remember, we had uh, this, this sort of second of our surges in Atlanta occur at the end of June and into July. Um, and, and I give the administration, the university administration and leadership a lot of credit for being willing and flexible to adapt and change as the circumstances changed. I mean, that's what, you know, out of the, the nearly two decades now of glo- uh, inter- infectious disease and global health epidemiology that I've done, one of the hallmarks of this uh, virus is that um, it moves very quickly and the circumstances on the ground change very rapidly. Um, and I think part of the success that we've had as a university has been thanks to the leadership's willingness to revisit previous decisions and adapt um, to the circumstances. And I guess speaking a little bit more to the university's success, I think from what I can tell, Emory's done a really great job containing cases. Um, I know you spoke a little bit about a uh, contact tracing system that's in place. Um, would you mind speaking more as well? I'm not on campus right now, so I don't really know the circumstances personally, but um, what is the testing protocol like? Because I know that that kind of might vary based on university. I'm just curious. Yeah, so this is, I think the testing um, policy and protocol is one of the major ways in which um, our our program has evolved over time. So initially the decision was that we would um, test all individuals before they, when they came back to campus for the fall semester. And the, the goal was, was really to have that be a one-time test um, to ensure that wherever anyone is coming from outside of the Atlanta area or even in the Atlanta area, when they, um, I'm a, I'm a pretty big sports fan. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about the professional sports bubbles um, that have existed and how the different leagues and the different sports have addressed the pandemic. And so I like to think of, uh, what we're doing at Emory sort of like, you know, the NBA bubble and, um, thinking about if we think of Emory as a, as a entity, whether that be the campus or the, the larger Emory community as a bubble. We know that there are going to be cases that enter the bubble. How do we prevent cases from propagating within the bubble? And that's the way we've been thinking about it. So when we first thought of our testing program, we thought of it as everybody would arrive in August to campus from wherever they were in the world outside. And before they entered the bubble or as they were entering the bubble, that we would test them. And we would attempt to identify anybody who was positive, isolate them until they were no longer infectious, and then move on. What we determined... Uh, some time in is that um, while that works initially, given the ongoing transmission that was happening around uh, Emory, that there will continue to be the risk that individuals would become infected outside of Emory and interface with the Emory community. And the, the group that was is at greatest risk for rapid um, transmission and propagation is the group of individuals who live on campus. Um, so given just the communal nature of living in uh, campus housing and in um, eating in campus dining, um, you know, I think those sort of are closely intertwined, um, but that introduces a risk where there's a lot of interpersonal contact and social mixing, and that if cases were to occur, that the likelihood that that case can be transmitted to, to multiple people would be greater than it would be among those who don't live in campus housing, live in smaller living uh, environments 
um, off campus. And so the, um, the eventual policy now has been for students who live in campus housing, um, they are required to be tested once a week to, uh, as asymptomatic individuals. And also playing into this is our knowledge that um, young adults uh, have a high rate of asymptomatic infectiousness. Um, we have some data from Fulton County that shows that, you know, 30 or 40 percent of people between the age of 18 and 30 um, can be infectious with the, with the novel coronavirus, but not manifest any symptoms from it. So simply waiting to have individuals develop symptoms and seek testing or doing things that we see everywhere, but that we chose not to do at Emory, like doing temperature checks, would not be sufficient um, to curb transmission. That um, in all likelihood, it appears that much of the transmission in this pandemic is occurring either in people who never develop symptoms or in the time period before people develop symptoms that they're infectious. And so with that in mind, um, our testing policy has been when uh, individuals first arrive on campus, and then if they live in campus housing, that they would be tested on a weekly basis. So is there a big effort to keep the student population living on campus physically on campus? Because I know, at least at other schools, I know my sisters at Duke, they, I think they're doing something where they're tracking locations or something. So if students like leave or go too far off of campus, there's some type of disciplinary action there. Is Emory doing something similar or is it kind of harder in a more urban area or setting? Um, so Emory, as far as I know, is not doing anything like that. Um, okay. And I don't think it's because it's harder. Um, mm -hmm. I think philosophically, as a university, we believe that students um, should, uh, in all the ways we can make possible, be able to lead um, lives that approximate as, as close to normal as one can in this pandemic. So our goal is not necessarily to restrict movement among people who live off campus, um, but, but rather to create a permissive environment to encourage people to take their own safety and the safety of their community into mind. So I think our goal is to ask people to be mindful um, that wherever they go, whenever they go, that they protect themselves and, and utilize the, you know, the, the basic principles of, of mitigating this, wearing a mask, staying distanced, um, you know, if you're feeling ill, not going to a, uh, a, a large group event. Um, you know, one of the things early in the pandemic that we didn't recognize as well that I think we have awareness of now is that being outdoors makes a big difference compared to being indoors. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence in the last couple of months that transmission is dramatically uh, greater in settings where there are individuals interacting indoors compared to outdoors. And so even though things are getting a little cooler um, in the Atlanta area now, in some ways, this is almost the, the perfect time of year um, in Atlanta where it's not too hot and mostly it's not too cold either. Um, and encouraging people to socialize outdoors um, is really important. I was um, I was thinking about this and, and joking about this. You know, we don't tend to bat an eye to bundle up and go to a, a football game outdoors if it's 40 degrees out. Mm -hmm. But the idea of spending two or three hours hanging out with friends outdoors doesn't feel like the same thing. It feels like, oh, we should spend time with friends indoors. Um, but if you could be outside for a three, three and a half hour football game, not that we're allowed to anymore, but before the pandemic we did that, or, you know, there are lots of people who enjoy skiing 
spending it, you know, eight hours skiing in 20 degree weather uh, or colder, we make it happen. Um, and so I think that that's one of the other things that, that I'd like to see us emphasize in, in the coming months. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I guess, too, another thing is I was one. So you said you do a lot of work in Fulton County and like sort of the state of Georgia as a whole. So I know that there's kind of a big disparity and at least like I know Emory's kind of had a lot of success in containing cases, whereas like Fulton County and I think like the state of Georgia as a whole has sort of been more of a hotspot for a while. I was wondering what you attribute some of those disparities to. Like, is it just that Emory has more resources to be able to contain it or is it just sort of a lack of education like with the state as a whole? I'm just wondering. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a great question, but it's a hard question to answer. I'll I'll try to peel off a few pieces of it. Um, you know, in many ways, uh, others have said it more eloquent to, eloquently than I have. But the pandemic has exposed many different facets of our society and where we are as a um, as a as a nation today. Um, I think much of what we're seeing in all of Georgia is a microcosm of what we're seeing in the country, and so some of that has to do with uh, messaging has to do with um, political affiliations has to do with um, really not either not understanding or not believing in what the what the dynamics are of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, at Emory, I think we've been fortunate to have uh, clear communications and clear leadership um, in setting forth policies and um, asking that those policies be followed. Of course, Emory is a better resourced. Uh, place than really most places in the country, um, and that helps as well. Um, there are a few tangible choices that we've made in terms of our control policy that do make Emory different than what um, the local health departments are doing around the state. So one uh, area that I can point to immediately is our policy when we identify somebody who is diagnosed and they tell us about close contacts is that all of those close contacts not only should they be quarantined, um, but they also should be tested uh, immediately. Whereas the state uh, health department policy has been that those individuals get quarantined. And then if they were to develop symptoms or be concerned in any other way, then at a later date, they would be tested. Um, so that in itself, you know, part of why we chose to, to require everybody to be tested right at the outset is, again, coming back to this idea of asymptomatic infectiousness and transmission um, and a recognition that if we waited for people to manifest symptoms, that by that point, they may have already transmitted to several others. We also have emphasized timeliness of investigation and contact tracing, meaning our goal was that when we as um, as a task force learn that somebody in the Emory community has been diagnosed um, to be positive with COVID-19, that our goal was to speak to that individual within 24 hours and to learn about their symptoms, learn about their exposures, learn about who their close contacts are. And then our goal was to reach their close contacts and have their close contacts tested within 48 hours with the recognition that time really was um, transmission, that the greater time that elapsed between when we could identify people and potentially new uh, folks who are infected or infectious and, and separate them from, the, from those around them, that would make a difference in terms of keeping the, um, the generations of transmission from happening. Um, and so I think those are things that we were able to do because of, of our resources, because of our um, 
single-minded uh, leadership um, that has come from, you know, from the executive vice president and eventually from President Fenves. And I think, um, you know, in some ways we're a, we're a mission-oriented organization, mm-hmm. um, providing education, providing service and providing research are the core values of the university. And with that in mind, it's been easy for us to have our eyes on the prize and say, if we want to do all of those things, here's what we need to do to make sure our campus is in a position to continue to do those. So I think another thing too um, that I wanted to address was like the spring semester as well. I know that, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the logistics is pretty similar to the fall semester just in terms of like who's getting housing and stuff. And I was wondering too, like if you similarly kind of had a role in that decision and like if there was ever kind of realistically a chance for everybody to come back as normal or was that always kind of off the table and was the situation that we have now always sort of considered the best case option? Yeah, so I have not been involved in any of the conversations or decisions about um, the spring semester and who comes to campus, who doesn't, um, and who who would be in residential housing or who would be uh, in in person classes. That has not been a part of the um, the conversations that I've been in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that uh, there are literally dozens of uh, faculty, administrators, staff who have been engaged. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the most enjoyable part of this pandemic for me has been to learn and, and meet uh, and, and collaborate with um, my colleagues from all over the university um, to be able to, to um, it, it's really been a multidisciplinary effort. So many of the phone calls that I'm on have somebody from uh, public health, somebody from student health, employee health, somebody from, um, Let's library and information technology, campus life, the dean's office, the provost's office. You know, it's really been uh, communications. Um, we have embraced this as a multidisciplinary set of decisions um, and people from all different walks of uh, campus, not just different schools, but also different disciplines coming together to help provide input. Um, but I don't actually know who, who was involved in the decisions that you're talking about. Um, cause that's not, you know, that's, uh, it's above my pay grade is, is the way I think most <laughs> gotcha. people phrase that. Um, uh. but I, I've been, you know, I think one of the challenges as we've had cases occur on campus and we have, right. We've averaged one student diagnosed a day. Um, if you look at the Emory COVID-19 dashboard, you look for most of the summer and the early part of the fall, we averaged one student diagnosed today, one faculty or staff member diagnosed today. In the last month or so, we've kind of climbed up to two students being diagnosed today. So there are cases occurring. Um, and thinking through how to keep that propagation from happening, how to keep one case from turning into six, I think has been part of the key. Um, and I think in many ways, in my opinion, even though I haven't been involved in the decisions, um, density on campus uh, plays a, a a role in how challenging it is to keep the um, the secondary and tertiary transmission from happening. Gotcha. So I mean, like you said, cases are rising too, and I've seen that like across the country, cases are spiking, and, and experts are anticipating you know a greater spike near the holiday season. Is that something that you're concerned about too? Because I'm just thinking like a lot of students living on campus right now may be going home and spending time with family members. Like, do you consider that to be very high risk and do you anticipate that that could be behind some spikes during the holiday season as well? 
Yeah, you know, I think um, when I think about the pandemic, I think about um, the major element I think about is if um, there's a phrase that we would call social mixing. Mm -hmm. So how many people does an individual mix with? And so in our normal lives, in a pandemic setting, we may mix with, let's say, between two and six individuals on a regular basis, Mm -hmm. Um, whether that's uh, with you know, within a close, what we would call close contact, or even in a more distant casual contact. Generally speaking, for those who don't live in in an environment like uh, campus housing, there's a handful of people you interact with on a daily basis. What happens is when um, we enter a time like the holidays, we have people traveling, we have people having gatherings. And so then what happens is your social mixing rate rises. And not only does the social mixing rate rise, if you think of each group of two to six people as a, as a circle, there tend to be connections between more circles. And so this circle now is connected to three other circles. So that um, if there were a case that occurred in my, um, in my circle, which let's say is four people, um, the, the um, chance of it becoming more than four cases is very low, right? But if my circle now is mixing with three other circles and there's a cumulative of 20 amongst us, if I come into that circle and am infectious, there's a chance that one case can become 20. And I think that those are elements for us to think about as people go home, mm-hmm. and especially as we look at Thanksgiving and the, and the winter holidays and, and the, the very normal desire to celebrate and to be together, right? This is normal. This is our human nature. And this is culturally what, we're, what we do. Um, that's where some of the challenge comes in. The other dimension that I think makes the next two to three months really hard is, as we talked about, is the weather. Um, as we spend more time indoors, that increases the rate. You know, we're more and more recognizing that there's an airborne component to transmission of this virus, that it's less about the surfaces that we touch, um, and it's more about sharing the same air and if we're indoors, that air tends not to be refreshed, and those particles that end up in the air tend not to be diluted in the same way. So um, our ability to be outdoors becomes diminished, particularly, you know, we're, we're lucky in Atlanta that really even at Thanksgiving, it's not very cold. Um, but I was speaking to my in-laws yesterday. They had snow in Cleveland two days ago. Um, I know one of my old college friends who lives in Boston told me she had snow last week. Um, so uh, especially in those northern climates where it's it's getting cold and harder to be outside, there's a greater chance of transmission. Gotcha. And I mean, do you worry too that this that the higher rate of transmission because of the colder weather and just because of the holidays could affect spring semester in any way? Like I, I... Um, at this point. Uh, that that worry hasn't crossed my mind. I think I, right. I've been a little more worried about the more proximate issues. Right. Right. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, t- it is wise for us to take the approach of um, being open to changing and evolving as the circumstances uh, dictate. Okay. Um, I'm hopeful that we will be able to curb transmission mm-hmm. over the next few months such that it won't impact our ability to come back for the spring semester. I, I think certainly some of the measures we took on returning to the fall semester will be important, um, which is to have people be tested either before they depart where they're coming from 
or when they arrive on campus. Certainly that will limit uh, the likelihood that, um, you know, in many ways when we have people coming from all over the country and in some cases um, all over the world, uh, essentially what we're doing is we're pooling the risk of all of those places into one place. Um, and so, you know, measures like testing before departing and, and on arrival may be to, things to consider. Um, I don't believe we did this in August, um, but it may end up being something that we consider in the spring, which is after arrival, we have a period of quarantine um, where everybody is here in Atlanta, but we're not interacting with one another for, let's say, a week or 10 days. Um, and then another test. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure if you're a sports fan, but um, you know, with the Major League Soccer bubble, what we saw was that even though the teams were tested in their home cities before they traveled to Florida for the bubble, many people were negative when they left their home cities and were in the incubation period. And when they arrived in the bubble, two or three days later, many of them started turning positive. This happened with, I believe it was the Dallas um, soccer team where they ended up with uh, five or six cases and they ended up withdrawing from the bubble. Um, so it's just the one-time testing um, isn't enough. We have to account for the fact that people could have been negative but could be incubating um, at the time of that test. And so we may need to give that some thought too. So I think there are strategies that we can employ um, that can help protect campus from the, the return um, and hopefully put us in uh, on solid footing to be able to have the spring semester the way we hope that it can be. Gotcha. And then I hear another question too. I know this is like probably a challenging question um, and it's very dependent on like whether or not vaccines are available and stuff like that. But I, I'm just sort of wondering too, how long do you kind of realistically expect that like we'll be on Zoom calls or we'll be having like a hybrid, like sort of hybrid learning format? Do you think this is something that could last years ahead, even with a vaccine? I'm just... Yeah. So let me start by saying, you know, I'm speculating as, as much yeah. as really anybody out there. Right. Um, right. And what it reminds me of is that a reporter asked me this question in March mm -hmm. and I said, at a minimum, we're going to be doing this for eight weeks and probably more likely for 12 weeks. Um, <laughs> yeah. And here we are, you know, eight months right. later. Right. Um, so uh, it, I think it's very difficult to tell. Yeah. Um, sure. uh, somebody raised the question to me of what will coming back to campus in the fall of 2021 look like? Mm -hmm. And this was about two weeks ago. And my jaw hit the ground because it, it never it hadn't yet dawned on me that we could be still doing this into the summer of next year. Right. Um, but I think it was a very important question that they asked me. And I think that we need to prepare that this could take a couple of years to get back to what we would quote consider normal. Totally. Um, but I am hopeful that uh, strategically there are a number of things that we can do. And I'm hopeful that we may have new tools that come along in the next couple of months that, when we're talking about returning to campus for the fall of 2021, I hope we're in a very different place than we are today. Uh, but I think that really nobody knows. You know, I don't think there's anyone in the world, um, as much as I respect people like Dr. Fauci and others, I really believe that nobody in the world knows at this point where we're going to be six months from now. Um, but I'm hopeful that it'll be a, um, a better place, w which will allow us a few more liberties um, mm -hmm. than we have now. Totally, totally. And so I just have one final question for you today, because um, it is election day. I, don't, I mean, if you don't want to get too political, that's fine. But I'm I'm sort of left to wonder. You do a lot. I think I mean you're doing a lot of work with like Fulton County in Georgia. 
So if Trump were to get reelected, do you think that would create some obstacles for you just in terms of like being able to sort of enforce mandates or spread public health information? Or is a lot of that decision making kind of independent of who's in office? Again, it's a great question, yeah. and I think it's a hard question to right, answer. Of course, yeah. um, I think, as we've shown at Emory, mm-hmm. um, as a small as a smaller community, right? And the Emory community is in the tens of thousands, right? Mm-hmm. So, as a smaller community, we have a lot of control over what we do, mm-hmm. um, and I think that what we've, you know, thankfully, uh, fortunately, shown over the last few months that we can uh, take control of our local environment and try to keep it as safe as possible for those around us. My hope has always been that we would have a nat- national strategy and a national plan mm-hmm. that would allow all communities to have the type of success that we've been able to put together so mm-hmm. far at Emory. And I'm hopeful that regardless of what the results of today are, both for the presidency as well as for Congress, that we are able to have a national plan. I think yeah. um, what we've done until now has really not worked. Right. Um, and uh, when you compare, even though there are surges happening in other countries around the world, our performance in this pandemic has clearly been worse than you know, nearly all other nations. Um, and I'm hopeful that regardless of what happens today, that we will have a better national strategy. But in the meantime, I think we can work locally um, and you know, try to do the best thing we can. Um, I've been happy to see that our numbers have not surged the way many other states have recently, and specifically even within Georgia, the Atlanta, um, the cosmopolitan sort of central Atlanta area has had lower uh, rises in case rates than other places. And I think that that has to do with some of the local leadership on the level of the counties as well as um, the city of Atlanta. So I think that there, we control the things we can control, um, but I'm hopeful for uh, a broader national strategy to come down the line. Gotcha. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, well, I think that's all I really had for today, but I just want to thank you again so much for giving me all that information. I really appreciate um, hearing what you had to say about everything that's going on. So. It was nice to speak to you, and I'm, I'm glad to see that you're doing this podcast and you're having this class. And that concludes all three of our interview segments for today. I really thoroughly enjoyed speaking to all three of our interviewees, and I'd just like to wrap up by highlighting some key takeaways from each of our speakers. I think if there's a common theme with all of our speakers, it is just how this pandemic has significantly altered normal routines and has forced major changes in how we live. I think it's also important to note the uncertainty that each interviewee referenced in their segments. Right now, unfortunately, there are no answers, and that's a major factor that's contributing to a lot of the widespread fear and a lot of the struggles we're facing right now. Uh, I think the Emory community should be able to take some comfort, at least, in the fact that such prominent members in all domains of campus life certainly want and are promoting what is best for the students. And I think, well, it's definitely frustrating to be physically separated and even emotionally disconnected from campus. I think we can all acknowledge that safety really ought to be our first priority right now. And I'll be honest, too, coming from a student perspective, prior to even creating this episode and talking to our interviewees, I felt really frustrated with the way Emory handled the situation, and I sort of felt like I'd been screwed over um, as a student, but I think... After hearing from our interviewees, I think particularly about the sacrifices professors, students, administrators, doctors, and just all 
you know, staff workers, I, every member of the Emory community has made throughout the semester, uh, I really feel like I need to be thankful for being a part of a community that cares so much about our own safety and really wants to do its best for us. And I think it's just so challenging right now because there's so many factors that need to be considered, you know, student safety, student mental health, academics, everything. Uh, And I think given the knowledge that was presented and given the circumstances, I really feel like Emory did the best that they could have. And they really do have our best interest in in mind. And I think that that concludes the episode. And I just want to thank you all again so much for taking the time to listen. Uh, I really enjoyed doing this. I hope you enjoyed listening as well. Uh, And I encourage you all to stay safe. Take care. Thank you for listening to the COVID Chronicles. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, and rate it on your favorite podcasting app. You can visit us at exploringhealth.org and follow the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory CSHH on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, stay safe and be well.